This message is brought to you by ABC Church in Ammonford, West Wales. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org. Good morning, ABC. I've got to begin with a confession, at which point everybody looks up from their Facebook page, thinking to yourselves, he must have done some bad things in his life. And you'd be right. And normally a confession begins with a little narrative, a little story, something along the lines of, Mum, cousin Jamie's gone missing, and the wood chipper's blocked. <laughs> We've all been there. But it's not that kind of confession. I'm going to give you a confession of faith this morning, because I am a Protestant Pentecostal Christian. And whenever you put a label on something, people will make assumptions about what that label means. So uh, I hope you all know what the word Protestant means. It's, it's a negative definition. All it means is that you reject the teaching and the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. Nothing else. But Pentecostalism. Do you know what Pentecostalism means? On the outside of this church, we used to have the word Pentecostal. It was removed. Maybe you should ask Phil why, but I suspect it was because people might have been deterred from coming here. Because when they saw the word Pentecostal, they might have thought of something negative and something crazy. To talk about Pentecostalism means that we actually have to go outside of the church to discuss it. Because the church is very, very poor at understanding its own history. Uh, this was brought on the other day when they did a survey in the States, and they asked a whole broad stretch of people what they knew about church history. And there was one group that knew the most about it, and there was one group who knew the least about it. The group that knew the most about it were the Jews. The group who knew the least about it were evangelical Christians. They didn't know the difference between Protestantism, Orthodoxy, the Roman Catholic Church. They didn't know what the Reformation was. They hadn't heard of Luther and Calvin. They just didn't know. The Jews knew. Why? Because the instruction from Moses to the Jews is study the scriptures. Therein you will find life. And once you start studying, you can't stop studying. Jewish culture is a studying culture. Unfortunately, as we'll see in a minute, evangelicalism is not. So I've had God's side of the church, to find out what's been happening in the church. And I am indebted to a gentleman by the name of Peter Berger, who passed away earlier this year. Um, His parents were Austrian Jews who converted to Lutheranism. He grew up in America, and he became a church sociologist. He studied the church and its transformation across the world. In particular, he was amazingly impressed by Pentecostalism. He said that Pentecostalism was the new Protestant work ethic. And he said Pentecostalism did these four things with people. One, it encouraged hard work. Secondly, it encouraged education, particularly education for people's children. Thirdly, it encouraged saving. And fourthly, encouraged modest consumption. And all of that, he said, led to social mobility. And he said it's a doctrine, a teaching of personal betterment. And I just want to begin by reading three scriptures. And the first one is from Acts. I'm going to read from chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, and then verse 17 to verse 20. When Pentecost Day came around, they'd all met in one room, when suddenly they heard what sounded like a powerful wind from heaven, the noise of which filled the entire house in which they were sitting, and something appeared to them that seemed like tongues of fire. 
These separated and came to rest on the head of each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with foreign languages as the Spirit gave them the gift of speech. Now verse 17. In the days to come, it is the Lord who speaks, I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. Their sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my slaves, men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit. I will display portents in heaven above and signs on earth below. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great day of the Lord dawns. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the third scripture is from Psalm 113, verses 7 to 8. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the gutter, so that they may seat with them, with princes, with the princes of the people. Are you a Pentecostal? Are you a real Pentecostal? Do you want to become a Pentecostal Christian if you're not one? At the end of this preach, I'm going to answer some questions in relation to that. In particular, I'm going to ask you to ask yourself this. If you call yourself Pentecostal, are you a fake Pentecostal, or are you a fabulous Pentecostal? Because there's two possible interpretations as to how that works out in your life. Pentecostalism is first and foremost the theology of liberation for the poor and empowerment for the powerless. And whenever the gospel comes to a people, the people's culture changes it. So Anglicanism is the Anglo-Saxon interpretation of Christianity. Uh, Roman Catholicism is the Italian interpretation of Christianity. Orthodox, the Greek interpretation of Christianity. The Coptic Church is the Egyptian interpretation of Christianity. Our own interpretation of Christianity in Wales was the Celtic Church, which died out a long, long time ago. And guess what? Pentecostalism is the black American interpretation of Christianity. It's called the first wave. It's called classic Pentecostalism. And its hallmark is experiential. The need to feel the presence of the Holy Spirit who brings spiritual, material, intellectual and social liberation. Because the Holy Spirit is given to us in order to lead us into all truth. John 16, 13. It's a refusal to be defined by anyone other than God's word, or accept that anyone is higher or lower than me in status due to accent or color or education or wealth, because God has no favorites. It's a return to the Reformation teaching of Luther and Calvin, but without the baggage, the theological baggage of denominations. It was radical and it was dangerous to established elites. And it didn't begin in a theological college or university or seminary. It began in Azusa Street in Los Angeles in a rented stable on the 9th of April 1906 when a one-eyed black preacher and grandson of slaves, William J. Seymour, got down on his knees having spoke on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And everything from that moment was transformed because the Spirit of God fell upon those people. And this is a quote from a newspaper at that time. And you can see the anger and the racism contained in this newspaper about what is happening in this rented stable. This is what the paper said. It involves a disgraceful intermingling of the races. These people appear to be mad, mentally deranged or under a spell. They claim to be filled with the spirit. They have a one-eyed, illiterate Negro as their preacher who stays on his knees much of the time with his head hidden between the wooden milk crates. He doesn't talk very much, but at times he can be heard shouting, Repent! 
and he's supposed to be running the thing. They repeatedly sing the same song, the comforter has come. From such an inauspicious beginning came the greatest single movement of spiritual renewal the world has ever seen. At the moment, there are 600 million people in the world who claim to be Pentecostals. That's 7% of the world's population. And the reason why Peter Berger was interested in Pentecostalism because it is the fastest-growing religious movement that there's ever been in any faith at any time, including in the history of Christianity. And what it intended to do, and what God wanted to do, he wanted to raise up the most poor and the most despised and the most oppressed people in America and raise them up and put them with princes. And you can suddenly see why, how threatening that would be to the devil. What was the devil's response? He was going to let this stand, I tell you this now, because America was founded, remember, as a slave-owning society by slave-owning patrician Freemasons. They weren't going to allow the blacks to rise up and actually take their place with princes. So the first thing the devil had to do was this. Keep them ignorant, because the key to social mobility is always education. Keep them ignorant by devaluing education. And the way to do it, you can't do it from outside the church, you've got to do it from inside. Do it with fundamentalism. Nothing wrong with fundamentalism when it began. Fundamentalism was actually a series of pamphlets produced by a millionaire oil tycoon in California. Just laid out the fundamentals of the faith. Nothing wrong with that at all. Then comes the Scopes trial in 1925, also known as the Monkey Trial. The whole thing was a con. A group of businessmen, their town was dying. They thought, how can we get people to come to our town and buy our stuff? I tell you what. I've just noticed that the state has passed a law saying you can't teach evolution in schools. Even though the school books in the state say that you have to teach evolution. I tell you what, let's pretend to have a trial. So they got together with a judge and with the prosecution, with the defense. They got a PE teacher who had never actually taught anything in school other than PE and said, look, will you please say that you've taught evolution and we'll have a trial and you'll be found guilty, and you'll be fined $100, and the prosecution will pay the fine, and we'll create publicity for the town. And they did it, and it worked. And everybody started looking at this town, and people came, and the town renewed itself. The trouble is, churches outside of that town thought that this was a real trial. And they came to conclude that, guess what, the education system is demonic. It's corrupt. They're teaching evolution in every lesson. And people started taking their kids out of school. And people started setting up Christian schools. And before long, it had transformed poor America into an anti-educational culture that was never intended. Pentecostalism was designed to alleviate the material, intellectual, cultural, social, and educational and spiritual poverty of the poor. And the problem with the poor is this. It's not that they lack money. They lack access to good education. The rich send their kids to private schools. The middle classes buy houses next to the best state schools. The poor are left with whatever's left over. And suddenly when you deny the poor access to education, guess what? You deny the access to prosperity and to social mobility. The Catholics say poverty is next to godliness. Fundamentalism in America ended up saying that ignorance is next to godliness. And so you're a little black girl in Alabama... And you want to be a doctor. And they're going to say to you, you can't study to be a doctor. You'd have to study biology. You'd have to learn how we're supposedly the same as monkeys. Why don't you just stay at home and do what your mama does 
and just clean white people's houses. You're a little black boy in Tennessee, and you want to be a geologist and work for an oil company, earn a lot of money. You can't study geology. They'll tell you the earth is ancient. You need to just stay at home and do what your daddy does and just cut the lawns of white folks. It denied the right for the poor to access education and so improve themselves. Pentecostalism sought to put the blacks with the princes. Fundamentalism put them back at the back of the bus. That's the first assault by the devil. Second assault was this, feed them poison. Take away the truth of the gospel from them. Faith, according to scripture, is always embedded in an action. The witchcraft law, teaching of the law of attraction, said that faith is a thought. Think money and health and get money and health. Pastor Norman Peel, in his 1952 book, The Power of Positive Thinking, applied the law of attraction to the church and it created the Word of Faith movement, the Name and Claim It movement, health and wealth gospel, positive confession, and suddenly you have denied people access to education and access to faith. And without faith and education, guess what? Your life will fall to pieces. And the result, it turned Pentecostalism in America from a Bible-based faith into an ignorant, magical thinking faith. And the result, Pentecostal in America was dead by 1960. And you look at America now, there are 14 million people, that's about 9% of the population, who claim to be American Pentecostals. But unfortunately, do you know what? They are the least educated, the least wealthy, the lowest earning, the most divorced, the most disabled, the most unemployed, the most right-wing religious group in the USA. 83% of them voted for Donald Trump, that lying man of lawlessness. The law of attraction has wrecked American Pentecostalism, and it's embedded the racial division at the heart of America. Martin Luther King said, the hour of the greatest segregation in America is 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, when the blacks go to their churches and the whites go to their churches. Malcolm X said, we did not land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. You know, the only people who went to America shackled in ships were black Africans. Everybody else went there to get a better life. They did not. And the sad thing is, the law of attraction works so well in America because it actually mirrored something embedded in the American culture. A bit of magical thinking was there from the beginning. The idea that you can make something and get something for nothing. The idea of the quick buck. It's part and parcel of the American dream. And it brings us back to that point I made at the beginning, that a culture will either reinforce or undermine the gospel when the word comes into that nation. But across the rest of the globe, Pentecostalism has been fantastic. In 1900, 75% of all Christians were in Europe. By 2000, 75% of all Christians were outside of Europe. That's because Pentecostalism spread like a wildfire across the planet. South America, 160 million people, 30% of the population are Pentecostal. It has materially transformed tens of millions of lives. Assemblies of God in Brazil, 12 million people. Assemblies of God in America, 2 million people. Guatemala has had two Pentecostal presidents. Brazil almost elected one two elections ago. So why is it the South Americans have taken to Pentecostalism so strongly? Well, it's because they're ex-Catholics. What Pentecostalism did was bring the Reformation to South Americans, something that had never happened before. And as a result, it's transformed 
South America. There's still three countries that are very resistant, Mexico, Colombia, and Peru. Those are the countries where the Roman Catholic Church is the strongest. They're also the countries where the highest level of drug murders are evident. It's even places where they worship the devil openly. Santa Muerto, a skeleton dressed as a nun to whom people sacrifice children. It's like the old religions of the Aztecs and the Mayans. But in the rest of South America, Pentecostalism is transforming everything. You look at Africa, 110 million Pentecostals, 12% of the population. Azusa Street missionaries went to South Africa within three weeks of the move of God in Los Angeles. The Assemblies of God was founded in Cape Town in 1908. However, African culture is unfortunately obsessed with spirits and demons, and that has tended to undermine the essential message of Pentecostalism. Let me read you this quote from an African pastor from his blog. This is what he said. African Pentecostalism has led to a new breed of mentally lazy young men who now see God as a rewarder of mediocrity. To the African pastor, the only way to prosper is by paying your tithe in the church. So they'll never talk about those who have, through hard work and dedication, placed themselves on the world map. The African God only blesses the first 30 people who rush to the altar to drop a $100 seed. The African God abhors hard work and creative thinking. He only gives to those who give offerings and shout, I'm a millionaire, every morning and do nothing for the rest of the day. Can someone tell these jokers that blessings follow you once you start using your talent and become useful to your society? So in Africa, Pentecostalism has really been broken on the back of the old shamanistic religions that dominate that continent. But then you look at Asia, and boy, is it transforming Asia. 135 million Pentecostals in Asia, and you don't know, and we don't know, how many Pentecostals there are in China, because nobody takes figures. The Pentecostal church is not legal in China. But we know that in South Korea, 15% of people are Pentecostals. Same in the Philippines. The culture in Asia majors on hard work and study, high educational achievement, the creation of wealth, love of family. So Asian Pentecostalism builds on Asian values, which is why you go to Seoul in South Korea, there's a Pentecostal church there with 900,000 people. You really wouldn't want to do communion on a Sunday morning in that church. <laughs> and then you look north of the border and you see that demonic, satanic, communist regime of North Korea. The North Koreans have hydrogen bombs. The South Koreans have a prayer mountain. It's like God and the devil facing each other across the DMZ. If the Third World, ever start, the Third World War ever starts, it's probably going to start there. Because two powerful spiritual forces are facing each other. The problem with Pentecostalism in Asia is that they are up against four of the most powerful principalities of the demonic realm that there have ever been. Islam, Hinduism, the Roman Catholic Church and communism. And Pentecostals are persecuted everywhere. And yet still, they are overcoming and they are growing and they are getting stronger and stronger. Asia is the great transformative continent on this planet as far as God is concerned. And then finally we look at the United Kingdom. 300,000 people claim to be Pentecostals in Britain. That's half a percent of the population. And Wales, well, <coughs> Wales has some claim to fame because 
two of the three great Pentecostal movements began here, Elim and the Apostolic Church up the road in Pentecost. The Assemblies of God is actually an American import. And I've been a Pentecostal Christian since 1975. I got saved in the Assemblies of God Church. And this has been my experience of Welsh Pentecostalism. I have never in my life met a group of emotionally maladjusted, intellectually challenged, spiritually ignorant, psychologically damaged, sick-bed-ridden, demon-obsessed, poverty-stricken, depressive, benefit-dependent people as Welsh Pentecostals. Your experience may be different. What went wrong? Well, this is fake Pentecostalism, okay? And the good thing when something is fake, it means that there must be something genuine that's being copied and pretending to be. And, you know, nobody fakes a a Primark shirt, do they? Because, you know, it's a cheap product. But uh, Jimmy Choo shoes and a Gucci bag and a Rolex watch, you might fake them, wouldn't you? So why does fake Pentecostalism exist? For the same reason that fake Rolexes exist. Some people aren't prepared to pay the cost for the real deal. They're not prepared to invest in their education. They're not prepared to invest in their careers. They're not prepared to invest in their children. They're not prepared to invest in their churches. Rather, they major on manifestation. Nothing wrong with manifestation, but it's pretty superficial. Just laughing and barking and falling down and talking in tongues. Great, wonderful, do it as much as you want. But guess what? It's not going to change you into a better person. Why did it happen in Wales? Why did we miss out on this? Because I can tell you now, Pentecostals were dead in Wales by 1960 as well. Can't be the law of attraction. Barely touched Britain because the law of attraction creates a blingy culture and the British on the whole aren't really into that sort of thing. Can't be persecution. We haven't been persecuted since the time of the Stuarts. Can't be that our underlying culture is anti-Christian because we've been Christian for about 1800 years so why did it happen here like this I think it's because Pentecostalism is in essence a positive can-do culture and I think Welsh non-conformist chapel culture is not it is essentially negative and pessimistic it's a can't-do culture and I think what happened was that can-do people left can't-do churches it's as simple as that And that fundamental flaw in Wales that runs through us all the way through, like a piece of rock, it's pessimistic. And the kingdom of God is, by definition, optimistic. It is about triumph. It is about being at the head rather than at the tail. And, of course, I think Pentecostalism was unfortunately undermined by that church culture. So the first wave of Pentecostalism in America and Britain died. But guess what? God hadn't finished with us. Then the second wave began. It's called the charismatic movement. It kicked off in the 60s where Pentecostalism left off. And this involved Anglicans and Methodists and Baptists being baptized in the Holy Spirit and suddenly speaking in tongues and using the gifts. And the beautiful thing about the charismatic movement was that they brought in the essential elements of Protestantism, the idea of hard work and vocation and holiness. And in Britain, you ended up with what's called the BNCMs, the British New Church Movement. Organizations like Covenant Ministries, New Frontiers, people like Gerald Coates, Bryn Jones, Terry Virgo, Carrie Jones. These people took from Wales, the apostolic church, the idea that, guess what, apostles and prophets are still relevant. They haven't been abolished. And 
The gifts are still there, but also the fruit of the Holy Spirit is needed in people's lives. And they created some really powerful movements back in the 60s and 70s. And it transformed a lot of lives. And it was something that was very positive and was very good. Of course, it tended to go wrong like all things, because within a strength there's always a weakness. The strength was holiness. So a pastor would come to you if you were living with a woman and you weren't married. And he'd tell you, do you know what? You've got to stop doing that. Either get married or separate. And if you don't, you'll leave this church. Great. That's the insistence on holiness. It steps over the mark when you start telling people who they can marry. No pastor has that power. So there was a degree of abuse from the beginning. But unfortunately, and this was the sad thing, the whole thing really came to an end in 1994 with the Toronto blessing. I mean, I've got no problem with what happened in Toronto. I've got no problem with the Toronto blessing. I think it was of God. The trouble is, it majored on manifestation. So by definition, the crazies and the flakies came out of the woodwork and started misbehaving. And I remember being in Stonely at the New Frontiers conference in 1994. 8,000 people in a hall. Terry Virgo is trying to speak. And there's six women on the side who are laughing hysterically. And he's asking them to stop. And he's telling them that the prophet controls the prophetic spirit. And he's saying to them, perhaps you should leave. And they won't leave. And they won't stop laughing. And in the end, he becomes exasperated. And the stewards have to come and carry them out one by one. I forget what his word was. It took him 30 minutes to start speaking. And I thought to myself, do you know what? The word of God is on that man. The Holy Spirit wants to speak. So what spirit is this stopping him from speaking? That's when it began to go wrong. And really, the entire charismatic movement in Britain began to close down at the end of 1994 and began to fade away. And people talk about the third wave of Pentecostalism. They call it the neo-charismatic movement. But I don't think there's been a third wave. I think what happened was this. When a river runs dry, it leaves pools behind. And I think people are looking at certain churches in Britain and saying, this is the third wave. But actually, no, it's a pool from the second wave. Take Bradford, for example. Bradford Church began when Bryn and Carrie Jones set up Covenant Ministries, and that was their headquarters. And then they decided in the late 80s to move to Anstey. And Carrie Jones asked a kid that he'd led to the Lord, who he taught in school in Newport when Carrie was an English teacher, to lead this church, okay? His name was Paul Scanlon. So the church was part of Covenant Ministries. They changed their name to Abundant Life. At the end of the 90s, they left Covenant Ministries. They called themselves Life Church. They're still there. It's a pool. It's a pool of light and love and the Holy Spirit. But it is just a pool. The third wave is yet to come. And I tell you this now. We need the third wave. And I don't know where it's going to start. I don't know how it's going to start. But I think to myself, do you know what? If God chose to pour out his spirit on poor black Americans in a disused stable, then he can pour out his spirit anywhere. Anywhere he chooses. As long as people get on their knees and start saying repent and start singing the comforter has come. It can happen even here in Ammonford. So, how do you become a Pentecostal Christian, if that's what you want to do. Well, you need a triple baptism. You need to be baptized in water, in the Holy Spirit, and in fire. 
Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. John says this, John the Baptist, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming is greater than I. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Luke chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus says this, I came to bring fire down to the earth, and how I wish it were already burning. Baptism in water just means you belong to Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven. Your name is written in the heavenlies as a man or woman of God who belongs to Jesus Christ. Acts 8, 36. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is interesting because it actually provides you with the teaching to end out. And people often think that the baptism in the Holy Spirit occurs at Pentecost in Acts. But I remember being taught that that wasn't true. And I've always thought, you know what, this is absolutely right. The baptism in the Holy Spirit occurs for the disciples in John chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, when Jesus breathes on the disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And the breath of God, the Ruach, one of the names that are used in the Old Testament for the Holy Spirit. Do you know what? It is that sensation of the breath of God coming upon you that leads you into all truth. It removes doubt. If you have doubt, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, there's one disciple who wasn't there when this happened. It was Thomas. Thomas is known as Doubting Thomas because he needs to actually materially see and touch Jesus to believe he's alive. The Holy Spirit will remove doubt from your life and remove doubt from your mind. And this teaching aspect is often overlooked. In the New Testament, Teaching is mentioned 193 times. Forgiveness is only mentioned 16 times. So which is the more important? It's teaching that leads to forgiveness. Take away teaching, how do you know if you're forgiven? So the baptism of the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. But baptism in fire is what so many people need and what so many people miss out on. That's what happens at Pentecost. The description we read earlier, tongues like of fire falling upon these people. What does the baptism in fire do? It burns out the root of sin in your life. Do you know what? You don't destroy a lawn by cutting the grass. In fact, cut the grass more often and the grass grows stronger, doesn't it? Because grass, like weeds, grows from the root, not from the tip. If you want to destroy a lawn, as I actually did this summer in my house... You've got to burn out the roots. I put too much weed killer on and I didn't water it in properly. And it burned out the weeds and it burned out the grass. And there are these black patches now on the lawn. Well, guess what? You don't lose the desire to sin just by not sinning. In fact, the more you don't sin, the stronger the desire becomes. Because sin grows from the root. The only way you're going to remove from yourself the desire to sin is by being baptized in fire by the Holy Spirit. That will burn out the root doesn't mean you won't sin, but you'll sin because you want to, not because you have to. And look at the disciples. The fire of the Holy Spirit falls upon them at Pentecost. What was their great sin? It was simple. With the exception of John, they were all cowards. They all ran away. They all abandoned Jesus. Peter denied Jesus three times. John, on the other hand, John goes with Jesus to the high priest's palace. He goes with Jesus to the cross. He's willing to lay down his life for his Lord. Jesus said, he who saves his life will lose it. He who's prepared to lose his life will save it. John was prepared to lose his life. And isn't it fascinating? He dies of old age. All the other disciples didn't want to lose their life. And every single one of them ended up being martyred. 
It's an interesting conclusion, isn't it? So when the fire of the Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples, suddenly their cowardice is gone. They're as bold as brass. They're standing there preaching and teaching, and you read through Acts, they are fearful of nothing. These are the men who turn the world upside down because the fire of the Holy Spirit has burned away the core sin in their life. What does God say? Is my word not like fire? Do you need that? Do you need that in your life? Be baptized in water. Be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Be baptized in fire and you will become Pentecostal Christian. Finally, the consequences of living a Pentecostal life. You will increase your spiritual, social and material well-being through work and education. Spiritual, because you'll become a man or a woman who can speak authoritatively about spiritual matters. Social, because you're engaged in the community, making the lives of others better. Material, because you know that the creation of wealth is a moral and spiritual obligation. You know, sometimes in scriptures we read about, you know, those who sow sparingly will reap sparingly. And that's often applied in a number of contexts. Take an unskilled worker. An unskilled worker has actually sowed sparingly into their own education and training. So I tell you this now, they will reap sparingly. There's a reason why consultants earn £250,000 a year and shelf stackers in Tesco earn £12,000 a year. They both work equally hard, but one has invested 14 or 15 years in their education. The other one might not have done so. Sow sparingly, reap sparingly. Sow massively, reap massively. It's not magical thinking. It's just practical application of the word of God. And when you become a Pentecostal Christian, you will, by definition, follow those four aspects that Peter Berger noted, the new Protestant work ethic. Secondly, you don't get fooled by false teaching. You don't get conned by con men. You discern the intentions of men. Why? Because you have a spiritual insight into reality. You have a name in the heavenlies. You understand the motivations of people and why they do what they do. You're not going to get conned by anyone. And that name in the heavenlies and in the community is because you're manifesting the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And the fruit is love and joy and peace and patience and compassion and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. You see, I haven't talked about the gifts this morning. Because what you tend to find is that fake Pentecostalism is obsessed with the gifts and the manifestation. But the gifts are just given. Christmas is coming up. Maybe you've asked for a gift. Maybe there's somebody in your life who loves you, who will give you a gift at Christmas. Or maybe somebody loves you and knows you better than you do and will give you a gift that you didn't know you were going to get and it's going to delight you on Christmas morning. The gifts are just given. And I don't believe they're ever taken away, actually. God gave Samson a gift. He couldn't use it for a while when he was disobedient. But when his hair grew back, guess what? He still had his gift. And then he was able for the first time in his life to use it for God by actually putting God before himself. And he dies in the process of destroying a false temple. Up until then, he'd been a bit of a crazy person just doing whatever he wanted to do. If God gives you a gift, I think you've got it for life, even if you turn out to be a bad egg. But the fruit, fruit has to be tended. 
You know, I've been trying to grow for the last couple of years a fig tree in our greenhouse. It's not working because fig trees, guess what? They don't like the environment in Wales. Wales is too wet and too cold and there's not enough sun. Fig trees are meant to grow in the Mediterranean. Last year we had a bit of fruit. This year we had no fruit. Your life and the way you choose to live your life is the environment in which the Holy Spirit will or will not manifest the fruit. Live a life that grieves the Holy Spirit. There'll be very little fruit in your life. Little love, little joy, little faithfulness, little patience. Live the life in accordance with the principles of the New Testament and the fruit will be abundant. What happens if there's no fruit? What did Jesus say in John? Any branch that does not bear fruit will be cut off and burned. You do not want to go down that road. You want to produce the fruit and then the gifts will follow. Because if you've got the fruit, you know what? You'll know how to use the gifts. And guess what? When you manifest the Holy Spirit in your life, it won't be a sham. It won't be a show. It won't be fake. It will be something fabulous and magical and wonderful and real. Because it is actually showing that the Holy Spirit is real and alive. And he's living in your body and my body. And our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And suddenly that will transform us. It will transform our families, and it will transform the community. And that's what happened in Azusa Street. They transformed the world, starting from a very poor and a very low beginning. And I just want to end with this. Why did God pour out his spirit in 1906? Why do it then? Because in a real sense, 1906 marks the beginning of the end times. If the scriptures are correct, and God is correct when he says, in the end times I will pour out my spirit. Why do it in 1906? I know why he does it among black Americans, because he wants to raise them up to the highest place. The only thing I can think is this. God knew what was coming. He knew that over the next 40 years, there would be two horrific wars that would kill 100 million Europeans. He knew that there would be global famine, that there would be global disease. He knew that the beasts of communism and fascism would rise up. He knew there was going to be a holocaust of the Jewish people. He knew that we were going to build hydrogen bombs. He knew that everything was going to go literally to hell on earth over the next 40 years. And so I think he poured out his spirit upon his people so that, guess what, they might be empowered to stand and stand again in a day and a time of trouble. Not necessarily to save their lives, but to save their faith. The reason why Pentecostalism transformed the third world is because in the past the Catholics and the Protestants had gone with a Bible in one hand and a gun in the other. And people thought, you know what? I don't want your faith and I don't want your gun. But when black Americans came to the third world, they thought these people have been the most rejected, the most put upon people on earth. And they're giving us a gospel of liberation so we'll embrace it and it will be transformative. And that's what happened for a while in Europe. The trouble is Since 1945, things have been quiet in the West, haven't they? When a hurricane comes, it comes with great force. And then comes the eye of the storm. And people used to think the eye of the storm was the end of the storm, but it's not. Back in the 20s and the 30s in America, people would sometimes come out of their houses during the eye of the storm and start picking up stuff from the garden and putting things together. They soon realized that the other side of the storm is coming, and it's twice as powerful as the first storm that hit. We're in the eye of the storm. The other side, the least side of the storm is coming. I don't know when it will come. 
But I tell you this now, the reason why we need the third wave of the Pentecostal movement in this country in particular is to survive what is coming. And you need it, and I need it. And all of those scriptures where Jesus says, seek and you will find, ask and it will be given, they're not to do with material things. You want material stuff, go out and work for it. These are to do with spiritual things, with the gifts and with the fruit and with the transformation of the character that you have. So that guess what? When the time of trouble comes, you can stand and stand again and give a good witness to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is waiting for all of you and for me because he just wants to pour himself out upon us. Will we respond? This message was brought to you by ABC Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org or search for us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also contact us by phone on 01269 596000.